Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Right now, we're working on uh, the segment, Covenantal History from Egypt to Jerusalem. And what we've done during that segment is we've looked at uh, the overall calendar of events from the time that Israel went to Egypt all the way to to the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which is going to... Loam, loam, which, going to be, which, which is going to play a very big role when we look at the book of Revelation. Then we looked very closely last, last time at the, uh, the ten plagues of Egypt and we understood the divine pedagogy, the way God works through these uh, plagues to make his name known to and to bring his people and Egyptians back towards him and free them from the things they get attached to. And tonight, what we're going to do, or at least attempt to do, is to look at the other side of the equation. Because one might be tempted to, to think that the Bible may be biased. Essentially, God hit the Egyptians and let the Israelites go home free, and so therefore his bias towards the chosen people, and he doesn't treat them the same way as he treats the Egyptians. And if indeed the Bible was written with a human mindset, you would see that bias come through. Because after all, if you pick any book of history, and Genghis Khan would be a very good example. If you, if you, how many of you have heard of Genghis Khan? Right. Uh, you know that Genghis Khan is the greatest conqueror of all. His kingdom was larger than anyone else. And in fact, if you really study his life, you'd, you'd, you'd reckon that probably there were three of them. And Genghis Khan being actually a title. There was a grandfather, a father, and a son. Huge, huge territory. If you study Genghis Khan in Europe, their view of him is essentially a conqueror and a tyrant. Because obviously he wasn't European. Alexander is called Alexander the Great. Yet he was another conqueror, another tyrant. But he was European. But if you study Genghis Khan in, say, Turkey, or any of those countries, you'll see that he was actually a mild, a mild ruler, beloved by his people, who took care of everybody. And was even fair towards his enemy. Such is history written by men. Not so with the Bible, which is very interesting. And, and what I want to do tonight, again, is focus on what I think are key passages 
for some of the scenes we're going to see in Revelation. And also, an important reminder for how the Lord deals with us and with human history in general. As well as a um, reminder of the importance of the covenant. For those of you who are, who are joining us now, I do recommend uh, very, very uh, strongly that you pick up the CDs for at least the first two uh, segments, the four senses of scriptures and introduction to the covenant, and you can get them from Michael, I'm sitting here, and, uh, um, because those are foundational for our understanding of the book of Revelation and scripture in general. And today we're going to see how this covenant is playing a very important role. What I want to do first is give you kind of a perspective. Let's go midway through and uh, start in the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is living in very troubled times. Times of invasion by Assyrians. And times of uh, great upheaval for the kingdom of Israel. Um, Again, remember that In the time of Ezekiel, the kingdom of David was split in half. So if you look at Israel as sort of a sock pointing towards the the toes, are kind of pointing to, 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 to your right, then the top half, the northern kingdom, was known as the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was known as the kingdom of Judah. And... He's living in very troubled times, and some elders come to him in chapter 20, inquiring, wanting to inquire with the Lord. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month. So, as soon as you hear the word seventh mentioned, you should have this kind of knee-jerk reaction that we call the covenant. This is a covenantal year. It's a year of the Sabbath. Because every seventh year was supposed to be a year of Sabbath, hence the sabbatical year that some professors get today. It comes, goes all the way back to that time. That's where it comes from. And the seventh of the seventh year, right, which would be 49, well, the year after that was supposed to be a jubilee year. Right? And one of the primary reasons why God shipped Judah into exile to Babylon was that they did not respect one of the commandments he gave them, namely that every seventh year, a Sabbath year, the land shall lay foul. It will not be worked. You don't work the land. Every seventh year. Well, they lived in the promised land for 490 years and never, ever applied this law. So God said, you owe me 70 years, so you go in exile for 70 years. That's how important this law was for him. So here we are, they go to to Ezekiel on the seventh year, how ironic, on the year where they actually are violating the covenant, wanting to get wanting to get him to, to um, inquire before the Lord. Right? And again, it's a very important reminder against the temptation that we may fall into today of thinking, 
All I need is me praying to Jesus. That's all I need. And the reason I'm saying this to you because repeatedly in Scripture, there are many examples where God actually refuses to hear the prayer. Not because the prayer is evil, but on account of the one who is praying. But that the same prayer coming from someone else would be heard. So the doctrine of the church on the intercession of the saints, and we being a communion of saints, or being surrounded by saints, is critical. And us, in asking the saints to intercede for us, specifically the Blessed Virgin Mary, is being actually on the right track. And to presume, to presume that my prayer is necessarily agreeable to God or heard by Him, is, is it fundamentally a sin of presumption on my part. It's taking God for granted. Nowhere does Scripture say, not even Jesus say, under all circumstances and all conditions, no matter what you're doing, you come to me and you pray, whatever you pray will be given to you. The underlying condition that he gave, in a very, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, is that you be what? A child of God. Therefore, you are covenantally bound to God and you live by the covenant. Then, whatever you ask will be given. Okay? And now we see it here very, very clearly. In the seventh year, in the fifth month, and tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. That's Ezekiel speaking. And the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live. Now, when you hear that expression, as I live, that's an oath. That's an oath. It's like, Amen, Amen. It's an oath. It's a covenantal oath. Very strong. As I live, says the Lord, I will not be inquired of by you. That's an absolute answer given by God under oath that He will refuse to even listen to their inquiry. Will you judge Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Then let them know. Then let them know the abominations of their fathers. The abominations of their fathers. It isn't even on account of their abominations. It's on account of the abominations of their fathers. You can tell how far we've strayed from a proper understanding of our faith when we are surprised by this language. When it shocks us. Because we become so individualistic, so fixated on me, that we miss the point. And say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel, I swore to the seed of the house of Jacob, making myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I swore to them saying, you notice the language, I swore, again, covenantal oath being taken by God, 
I swore to them out, I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the, 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 the the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That is the condition. I'm going to bring you out, and I'm asking you to cast away all these things. And what he says to them, through the moral reading of scripture, he says to us, even more so today. Because the, the, the Israelites did not have to receive him in the Eucharist. We do. So it's all the more applicable to us, not less. But they rebelled against me and would not listen to me. They did, they did not. Every man cast away the detestable things their eyes feast on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And I thought I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. So, remember when we said God waited for 100 years before he heard their pain when they were slaves? Well, here it is. Right? Here it is. But I acted for the sake of my name. I acted for the sake of my name. So in essence, everything, every good thing done is done for the glory of God's name. And our own examination of conscience, which start every day by simply asking this question, what have I done today for the sake of God's name? What have I done today for the sake of God's name? Not for my own sake. For the sake of my name, that it should not be profane in the sight of the nations among whom they dwelt, in whose sight I made myself known to them, in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. You see how God is jealous about his name, and how God's name should not be profaned. So, remember this, that if you have had the habit, or if you are in the habit of using the name of the Lord in vain, realize the seriousness of what you're doing. Right? So, verse 10, I led them out of the land of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and showed them my ordinances, by whose observance men shall live. Right? Now notice, this is very important. He said, I gave them my statutes, my statutes, and showed them my ordinances, by whose observance not Israel shall live, man shall live. Those are not statutes and ordinances reserved only for Israel. Those are statutes and ordinances by which man shall live. What is he referring to here? What are those statutes and ordinances by which man shall live? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Alright? And that's why Jesus tells the rich man, obey the commandments. Because those are the commandments by which man shall live. Moreover, gave them my Sabbath as a sign, as a covenantal sign between me and them, that they might know that I, the Lord, sanctify them. 
You notice, I the Lord sanctify them, not that they may know that they are sanctifying themselves in my sight. I the Lord sanctify them, through which, through those ordinances and statutes I gave them. So the Ten Commandments have power of sanctification in them, if you are able to live according to them. That's why they're so important. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my ordinances, by whose observance men shall live, and my Sabbath they greatly profane. Then I thought I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them, but I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profane in the sight of nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. So why is God... Um, Concerned about his name being profaned among the nations. Because God has in view and in mind the salvation of all the nations. And he does not want his name to become an obstacle for the nations being saved. So you notice that his concern is not just for Israel, but it is also for all the nations. Verse 17, Nevertheless, my eye spared them, and I did not destroy them or make a full end of them in the wilderness. And I said to the children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their ordinances, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I, the Lord, am your God. Walk in my statutes, and be careful to observe my ordinances, and hallow my Sabbath, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I, the Lord, am your God. But the children rebelled against me. That's the second rebellion at Massa and Meribah where they rejected God, and the children, the next generation fell, just as the first generation did, and they profaned my Sabbath. Verse 22, But I withheld my hand and acted for the sake of my name, this is the third time, that it should be profaned in set of nations. I swore to them in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the nations and disperse them to the countries because they had not executed my ordinances but had rejected my statutes and profaned my Sabbath and their eyes were set on their father's idols. Moreover, I gave them, verse 25, and that's key, that is very key. Moreover, I gave them statutes that were not good and ordinances by which they could not have life. I gave them statutes that are not good and ordinances by which they could not have life. And I defiled them through their very gifts in making them offer by fire all their firstborn that I might horrify them. I did it that, that they might know that I am the Lord. Alright, what's going on here? By the way, this is the crux. This is that these couple of verses is the crux of uh, my, my personal take is these verses are at the crux, at the core of a literal interpretation, a proper interpretation of the book of Revelation. They're at the core. In order to understand what is going on here, let's not rely on our own interpretation, but let's go to St. Paul. Turn to Galatians, verse, uh, chapter 3. Um, I, I chose this passage from St. Paul uh, in particular because it is uh, one of the readings we hear during the Maronite liturgy. This passage from St. Paul is often read. And it's not easy to understand unless you have this whole context behind you. 
St. Paul is writing to the Galatians and he's very upset with them. And the reason why he's very upset with them is because the Galatians, the Galatian church, decided to go back to circumcision. Now, when we say that the Galatian church went back to circumcision, we don't simply mean the actual physical operation. What circumcision represents is actually the entire, entire liturgical and religious life around the temple. So when you say that I'm going to be circumcised, you say, I am now going to go to the temple once a year, I'm going to pay tithe to the temple, I'm going to live according to the laws that govern the temple, therefore I am going to now live according to which laws? Which ones? Mosaic laws, not the Ten Commandments. The book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, that's what you're going back to. And St. Paul is very upset. And he explains why this is wrong-headed. The explanation is not easy, but we can make sense of it. And it, high, it explains what he says back there. Now, chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Let me ask you. Only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain? If it is really in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? So what is he contrasting? He's contrasting Spirit and flesh, and faith and the law. Which law? Which law? Is it any law? Exactly. St. Paul is not telling them, become, he's not here saying, let go of any law, become anarchist. That's not the point. He has something very specific in mind, which is the fact that they went, to, they went back to circumcision, which is the old law. And so the contrast is between what? Between faith and law, spirit, and the flesh. So what, what is St. Paul's view of the old law? It is for the flesh. And it does not bear faith. Where does he get that from? Ezekiel. Plainly stated, I gave them statutes and ordinance by which they could not live. If you could not live by them, Obviously, God did not mean physically live, because they lived physically. So what did he mean when he said, by which they could not live? By which they could not have spiritual life. Therefore, the Mosaic law was not able to carry through, to provide, to produce the spiritual life. You understand? Thus Abraham believed God... And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Why is he, does he go back to Abraham? Because Abraham is before the law. Right? He's outside of that Mosaic law. And so he goes all the way back to the Abraham and to the covenant with Abraham. And he says, God made a covenant with Abraham and he made the promise to Abraham not on account of the law. And what is given will not be taken back. But there's, a, but there's a problem. 
What is the problem? God made the promise to Abraham, then instituted a law, statutes and ordinances, by which the promise made to Abraham could not be fulfilled. You see the problem? God makes a problem, makes a promise to Abraham, and he says, by you, by your seed, shall all nations be blessed. Then in Ezekiel, God says, I gave them statutes and ordinances by which they could not live. Well, if they could not live by those statutes and ordinances, it follows that they could not possibly bless anybody. Right? So, how could God possibly bring about, bring forth, make the promise to Abraham real if God were to stick to the old law? It's impossible. Right? So what does God to do? What does He have to do? He has to bring it to a close. It's got to end. You understand? If it doesn't end, the promise made to Abraham will not come forth. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And we're going to see that a little bit more in detail. What is he making reference to? It's not under a curse spoken of vaguely. Paul has something, St. Paul has something very, very specific in mind. We're going to go back to it. Okay? For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And again, that's the covenantal curse. You see how the covenant is pivotal for all these for all these passages. You don't have the covenant in mind. You understand how the covenant works. Blessings and curses. None of that makes sense. You missed the boat. Now it is evident that no man is justified before God by the law. For he who through faith is righteous shall live. But the law does not rest on faith. The law does not rest on faith. You don't have to have faith to abide by the law. You understand? You see the great, the, the clear demarcation between the old and the new? Very important. You don't have to have faith to abide by the law. The law was all external. It didn't require faith. That doesn't mean that people... It does not, I'm not saying that therefore the Jews do not have faith. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the law by itself does not require faith. It just requires you obeying the principles, the commandments given by the law. That's it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. So he says, The curse of the law was taken upon... Christ took the curse upon himself when he hung from the tree. And therefore paid the ransom for our freedom. Our freedom from the law. You understand? That in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 19, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and was ordained by angels through an intermediary. So the, 
ancient, the old law was ordained by angels to an intermediary. The intermediary was Moses. And as, we, as you recall, Moses and, 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 and Aaron. There's a whole hierarchy of intermediaries between God and man, because God was removed. Is, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given which could make alive, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture consigned all things to sin, that what was promised to faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what was the law for? It was because of sin. In other words, the law that was given in the book of the law, Love Moses, was the law by which sin could be measured. That was its purpose. To show you how sinful you are. For if the law was not given, how could God say to anyone, you committed a sin? He could not. He had to tell them what is the measuring rod by which sin can be measured. That was its purpose. Its purpose was to showcase our sinfulness. Its purpose was to show us how in need of redemption, how in need of grace, how in need of salvation we are, so that we can ask our Father in heaven and he may give it to us. That was the purpose of the law. Okay? Uh, one more thing I want to point out to you in Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. So the notion that, you know, curses are confined to the Old Testament and not to the New is foolish. It is in the Old and it's in the New because the covenant works the same way in the Old and in the New. Right? And you need to realize that effectively bishops, you've heard me say this a number of times, bishops are the most powerful men on earth. That's what a bishop is. He's the most powerful man there is. And you need to realize that a bishop has power to bless, and he has the power to curse. And effectively the church used that many times through her councils, when they would say, let, if someone does not abide by the rules of this council, let him be anathema. That's effectively a curse. Now I'm not saying these things to you because I particularly revel in curses. Alright? But the reason why you hear me insist on, these issue, on this issue of curses is because precisely people revel in blessings. And oftentimes we take God for granted. Right? As, as, as if God has no expectation for us. And my hope is that by making you aware of the way the covenant works, making you aware of how God works through our lives, number one, you gain a greater peace when it comes to suffering in the world, because you still see the loving hand of God working through history for the salvation of mankind, that your faith in God remains strong even when you're in the middle of afflictions, and that you realize that the, be- the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And don't be taken away by this m- modern notion that God has no teeth. He's just a fluffy rabbit. Alright? That's why you hear me insist on that. But don't think that I'm insisting on those things because blessings are not important. Not at all. But the blessings cannot be fully appreciated and understood if we don't understand the other side of the equation.
Now that I said all that, I want to go back and, and showcase two passages in Scripture that are very, very strong. And that will be the first time and the last time I will speak of them in this whole Bible study. Because they're very strong, they're very powerful, and they're very important for the book of Revelation. Again, we see certain imagery in these texts we're going to see right now, which are going to recur in the book of Revelation. And those texts are foundational for the entire covenantal history, all the way to till 70 AD. They effectively loom very large on, these, on this period, and contrast the New Testament, which does away with them, but institutes other blessings and other associated curses. So turn right now to Deuteronomy. We're going to go to the first Deuteronomy chapter 28, and then we'll go into Leviticus 26, which is its counterpart. Here is this chapter where Moses... So the, the book of Deuteronomy is the book of the law given to lay folks. That's its purpose. Deuteronomy contains the law for lay people. Leviticus, as its name implies, is the book of the law for the Levites. And who are the Levites? The priests. Alright? So these two together constitute the law of which Paul was speaking. Now, 28. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments, which, which I command you this day, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Imagine this. Being overtaken by blessings. Right? They will overtake you. This is God's generosity. He doesn't, he doesn't give a, you know, a teeny-weeny little blessing. Right? They'll overtake you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. So the blessing extends geographically everywhere. Doesn't matter if you live in a city or you're a, 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 a farmer. Doesn't matter if you are a clerk or you are a shepherd. You're all blessed. All the same. <coughs> blessed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your beasts, the increase of your cattle and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading trowel. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. So, first, you have the blessing of the family, and you have the blessing of all the sources, all the natural sources that support the family. Furthermore, you have freedom of movement. Alright? The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. You shall come out against you, they shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So now you have the opposite of famine. You have plenty. You have plentiful. You, you have what it takes to live and prosper. 
The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and I shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your body, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. Notice the repetition. He said it the first time, he comes back and he says it again. Remember that in Hebrew, there's no way of saying um, better or best. Right? You say good, if you want to say better, you're going to say good, good. If you say best, you say good, good, good. So repetition is there to indicate intensity. The Lord will open to you His good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain of your land in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. To give rain in its season. So there's order in nature. Nature is not disordered. Notice how in the biblical view of nature is again covenantal. You live, the people of the covenant live according to the covenant, nature is ordered. The people of the covenant do not live according to the covenant, nature is disordered. So, what is the advantage that the ancient had on us? They had a covenantal understanding. We speak of mother nature. Effectively, when we speak of mother nature, in a mild way, but in a profound way, we are idolaters. We've kicked God out, we've kicked the covenant out, and we don't make any relationship between the state of Catholics and the way they live the faith today and nature. There's no connection in our mind. Therefore, we can never solve the problem. Until we realize that what is outside the church is a reflection and intensification of what goes inside the church, we'll never fix the problem. Because we're trying to fix the symptoms instead of fixing the cause. You don't fix the world so the church can fix it herself. You fix the church, the world will take care of itself. That's how it works. That's how the covenant works. And you see how far away we are because we don't even have that basic understanding. And the Lord will make you abundant prosperity. We saw that. The treasury and the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall tend upward only and not downward if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, being able to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you this day, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. So, you obey the commandments of the Lord, the ten commandments that He gave you. And what do you get? You get peace. You get prosperity. You get um, power, you get, you, you, and you live happy and secure, and there is order in nature. That's what you get. Right? Has any of, and, and so today when you look, you look at nature, you look at what's going on out there, and the interesting thing people immediately jump to, if there's like seven or eight earthquakes, they immediately jump and say, oh, it's the end of the world coming. No, it's not. Just a manifestation of the way we, Catholics, are living the covenant. That's all. It's a manifestation of how the household of God is living the covenant. The more ordered we are, the more saintly we are, the more holy we are, the more nature and the world are ordered. The more disordered we are, the more, um, the more we follow our ways, the more we are 
are disobedient, the more we don't follow the teachings of the church, the more the world is disordered. That's the connection. That's how it works. And that's why, you heard me repeat this so many times, contraception is our golden calf. It is our, it is the number one evil, because as soon as we contracept, we introduce that into the church, we're effectively violating all the Ten Commandments. So don't, ex- don't expect peace in the world, don't expect nature to work appropriately, don't expect to have tranquility until Catholics stop contracepting. Not going to happen. Because the covenant works this way. That's the pattern. We've seen it in the past, we'll see it today, we'll see it tomorrow. Now, that w- those were the blessings. But... If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all His commandments and His statutes, which I command you this day, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be your basket and your net kneading trough. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body. What is he saying exactly? What is he cursing? All the babies. All of them. It's easy to read these texts and and then just kind of be carried away, but stop and think about it. All of them. You see, effectively, right here, that God puts a higher bar for Israel than He did for Egypt. After all, in the case of Egypt, He didn't curse all the babies. He didn't do that, did He? Cursed shall, shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send, you, will send upon you curses, confusion, frustration, and all that you undertake to do, until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your doings, because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence cleave to you until he has consumed you off the land which you are entering to take possession of it. So, first, there is no, um, there is no sense of peace. Second, we see pestilence now. Okay? The Lord will smite you with consumption, fever, inflammation, fiery heat, and with drought, with blasting, and with mildew. They will pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be brass, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust. From heaven it shall come down upon you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So we saw hunger. Now we're suddenly seeing war, famine, hunger, famine, pestilence, war. Those are telltale signs of a covenantal curse. Alright? You shall go out one way against them and, and, and flee seven ways before them. I, I think by now I don't have to note the seven again, right? I think you're, you're, you're starting to, to get that. And, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And in Revelation, right before the final battle, not the first battle of Armageddon, there's a second one, the angel assembles the, beast, the, the, the birds of the air to come and feast on the dead ones. Why is that image used in Revelation? Because it points straight back right here. Alright? 
And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt, and with the ulcers and the scurvy and the itch, of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will smite you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind, and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways. Isn't that kind of a little bit ironic right here? And you shall not prosper in your ways? I mean, why does he? Why is that right there? Why, why, why does he say, and you shall not prosper in your ways? I mean, who would be thinking about prospering at this point? Because of the, the bent that the human mind has of finding ways of taking advantage of any and all situations and trying to make a buck. So I'm just, I was just listening to a report on the assistance that we're trying to give to Indonesia after the tsunami. And now you see that along those beaches where you had poor people living before, they didn't get the land back. They got displaced. You have now sprawling hotels being built. You have companies moving in. That's why it's right there. He understands the psychology of man. How even in those situations, we still cleave to our ways and still try to find a way to make a buck for ourselves. And you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, and another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, you shall not use the fruit of it. Your ox shall be slain before your eyes, and you shall not eat of it. Your ass shall be violently taken away before your face, and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, and there shall be no one to help you. You notice how again he goes from the out... Uh, the, 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 the parts that are most farthest from us to the parts that are closest to us it's getting closer and closer and closer right he hit upon the nature he hit upon general things we can live by he talked about diseases now he's talking about things being slain the, uh, the ox is taken away the, 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 the sheep are, are slain are taken away and now your sons and daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on, on and fail with longing and fail with longing for them all the day, and it shall not be in the power of your hands to prevent it. A nation which you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you shall be driven mad by the sight which your eyes shall, be, shall see. The Lord will smite you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils, of which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Here we go again, a repetition of the same things coming back. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you. Wait a minute, king? Stop. King? We're in the middle of the desert. Moses is speaking. There's no king. But often in scripture you'll see this decriminalization, where something that will happen 450 years later is spoken of right now, because of its importance. Alright? The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone and you shall become a horror, a proverb and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. So exile, being driven away from your land, not being able to live where you, where you were born. You shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather little in, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather of the grapes, for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, 
but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. All your trees and the fruit of your ground the locusts shall possess. The sojourner who is among you shall mount above you higher and higher, and ye shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, and you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. All these curses shall come upon you, and pursue you, and overtake you, till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. They shall, they shall be upon you as a sign and a wonder and upon your descendants forever. You think it's enough. Right? No. This is the longest chapter in scripture. The longest chapter in scripture. You think, okay, what worse? What else can happen? Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart by reason of the abundance of all, this, of all things... Therefore, you shall serve your enemies with whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and in want of all things, and he will put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies. And again, flash forward to Revelation. At one point, there is an eagle flying up in heaven in Revelation, and, and the eagle says, Woe! Woe, woe, three times woe, which is the greatest possible woe you can get. Alright? So that imagery is used to bring forth that nation of which you speak, which are, which are the Babylonians who came in 587 and destroyed Jerusalem. Alright? And then that image will serve in Revelation to indicate what is about to happen. A nation of stern countenance who shall not regard the person of the old or show favor to the young and shall, and shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your, of your ground until you are destroyed, who also shall not leave your grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your cattle, the longing of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you, and you shall eat the offspring of your own body now those of you who have Bibles you're reading that right I just want to make sure that those of you who don't have Bibles realize I'm not making that up but I'm just inserted this here you shall eat the offspring of your own body the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress which your enemies shall distress you the man who is the most tender and delicately bred among you will grudge food to his brother, to the wife of his bosom, and to the last of the children who remain to him, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating. Very good question. Let's find a way out. Very good, very good reaction. Is this literal? Do you have to take this literally, or is this just a metaphor? Alright, the most tender and delicately bred woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot upon the ground because she is so delicate and tender will grudge to the husband of her bosom, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears because she will eat them secretly for want of all things in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. Now I think you understand why I said I'm going to read those two chapters today. And I'm not going to read them again. But I don't want you to forget them. If you're not careful to do all the words of this law, which are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awful name, this glorious and awful name, the name of the Lord. 
glorious and awful. The sense of awe, awful. It's glorious, but it is awful. The sense of awe that one has to have in the presence of God. Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting, and He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt which you were afraid of, and they shall cleave to you every sickness also and every affliction which is not recorded in, this, in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed, whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, you think, what worse? You know, it can't get any worse than that, can it? Right? Well, actually it can. It does. Now listen to this. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. It's hard, isn't it? That's why the church in her wisdom always recommended that scripture be read with a good commentary. And then anyone who has this notion that all I need is the Bible is certainly someone who hasn't read that chapter. See how nonsensical it is? Let me repeat those verses just in case you didn't hear them well. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land which you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no ease and there shall be no rest for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart, a failing eyes, languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, would it, were, would it were evening? And at evening you shall say, would it were morning? Because of the dread which your heart shall fear, and the sighs which your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey which I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves. But no man will buy you. Okay, now that was to the lay people. Let's see what God has to say to the priests. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and your threshing shall last to the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full, and dwell in your land securely, and I will give you peace, and I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will remove evil beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land, and you shall chase your enemies, and they, and they shall fall before you by, by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And I will have regard for you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. And you shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. And I will make my abode among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. Interestingly. My soul shall not abhor you. That's the best they can get. My soul shall not abhor you. Okay? If you are a Levite, if you are 
a Sadducee or a Pharisee at the time of Jesus, which you have that in mind, you know that the best that can happen to you is that God's soul will not abhor us. And you hear the voice from heaven that says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now on the surface, if you don't have the covenant in mind, it sounds kind of a little bit weak. I mean, really, God the Father, is that the best you can say about your son? In whom I am well pleased? But that's not the point. The point is that in him he is well pleased, in them his soul will not abhor. There's a huge divide between the two. Do you understand? I am the Lord your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I have broken the bars of your yoke and made your walk erect. So, this is 46 verses long. 14 verses for blessings. Now, buckle up. But, if you will not hearken to me and will not do all those commandments, if you spurred my statutes and if your soul abhors my ordinances so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, but break my covenant, I will do this to you. I will appoint over you sudden terror, consumption, fever, that waste the eyes, and cause life to pine away. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be smitten before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not hearken to me, then I will chastise you again sevenfold for your sins. You see how in the case of the Levite, the language is absolutely covenantal. The sevenfold is repeated over and over again on account of the covenant, and they are the priests who are in charge of making sure that the people of God are living the covenant. They are essentially entrusted with that covenant. And if in spite of this you will not hearken to me, I will chastise you again sevenfold, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron, your earth like brass, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then, if you are contrary to me, and will not hearken to me, what does that mean? It means that he, there will be one series of plagues coming. And they, the point is what? God is saying, come back. Right? So he sends the first warning signal. Very strong. But it's a warning signal. And he says, come back. If you do not hearken, if you don't listen, I will bring more plagues upon you and sevenfold as many as your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts among you which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few number so that your way shall become desolate. Right? That word. Key in on that word. What did Jesus t- say to the Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew chapter 13? After they said, it is by Beelzebul. I'm sorry, it's chapter 23. After he pronounced the seven series of woes. What did he say? He said, behold, your house, meaning the temple, is now empty and desolate. That's not an innocent word that the Lord used. It is not a random word. That word is like 9-11. 
I say 9-11, a whole context comes back, doesn't it? Your head is flooded with images and thoughts and desolate brings Leviticus 26 back. You understand? And if, this, if by this discipline, that's the key word, he's a father, he's disciplining. Well, you think, well, wait a minute, with a God like this, who needs a devil? I mean, <laughs> talk about discipline. But why is it so rash? Because the disease is so deep. Because our heart is so hard. That's why. So what is God doing? It's the same principle we saw with the Egyptians. What did He do to the Egyptians? He took away from them the things that they are cleaving to, which are condemning them to hell. And here, He does the same thing. The same pattern repeated with His own people. So someone has an inordinate love for his child, and loves the child in a very materialistic way, and how does that mean? Well, okay, we're only going to have two kids. Because you know what? We did our calculation. It's going to take us $150,000 to get them to college and get them educated. And the way these parents are thinking about it, they're actually prepping their kids to go to hell. Okay? That's what they're doing. Because all their view is purely materialistic. Never mind that my, what my spiritual life of my kid is. Never mind if my kid is virtuous or not. Never mind, you know, of course I take that for granted. You know, which flies in the face of all of Scripture. Scripture says the exact opposite. Beware. You had a lot of hard work to do. No, 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 no. I'm thinking, my kid is of course virtuous. Why? Because, why? Because he is my kid. That's why. My name is attached to this kid, therefore the kid is good. How tyrannical. What a false love this is. So what, God, what does God do? In his, if, if really God loves truly these parents, what does He do? He takes the kid away. That's what He does. He saves the kid to begin with. And it's a wake-up call. Now, I don't want you to think I'm generalizing. I just take, I took one hypothetical example. I'm not saying that in every single case, when a kid dies, it means this. That's not what I'm saying. Right? That would be foolish. I'm only saying there are cases where God will take something that we care, whether it's a kid, or it's a car, or it's our health, or whatever, to bring us back to Him. He will go to extremes to save us, because He truly loves us. Whereas we tend to love ourselves, and therefore, we will not necessarily tell someone what He needs to hear. Because we love ourselves too much. You are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will smite you sevenfold for your sins. I myself. You notice the I myself. There's no way around it. It isn't, oh well, it's, you know, Mother Nature or the... No, it's I myself will. It's an affirmation that He is involved very intimately in our lives, and He takes part in everything we do. Because he loves us. And I, will, and I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. What is the first image in the book of Revelation? What do we see? Jesus with what coming out of his mouth? Double-edged sword. You understand that imagery now? 
It's the vengeance of the covenant. He is there to execute vengeance. That's why he takes on that image. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I will break your staff of bread, ten women shall bake your bread into one oven, and shall deliver your bread again by way, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. And if in spite of this, you will not hearken to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. I will walk contrary to you in fury and chastise you myself sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste. And I will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing odors. And I will devastate the land so that your enemies will settle in it, shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations. And I will unsheathe the sword after you. And you shall and your land shall be desolation and your cities shall be a waste then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath as long as it lies desolate remember Ezekiel you did, you did not uphold my Sabbath that's the reference and the reason why I'm reading these two chapters is not because I revel into those curses but because the whole history of salvation essentially points back to these two chapters it's, it reads like this this is what God said, here's the blessings, here's the curses. Now, let's look at the bottom line. Let's look at the credit, let's look at the debit. Let's see how Israel fared from the time those laws were given, the blessings and the curses, to the time of the coming of Christ. And so, I, advise, I, I recommend that you go back and read the book of the Kings. And what is the litany, the refrain in the book of the Kings? And so and so became a king after his father, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So, you read this, and you keep that in mind, and you think, okay, on which side of the fence they fall? And notice, it's they, it's community, it's the whole people, it's not individuals. On which side of the fence they fall? And you, you okay, check curses. Check curses. Check curses. They're going to get it. They're going to get it. They're going to get it. Warning signs after warning signs. So you have all the prophets coming down, warning them, warning them, warning them, warning them. And they keep on going. They keep on doing the same good old thing. And so, the question is asked, were these to be taken symbolically, perhaps? What I'm going to do next time, and I'm bringing with me, I was, I was planning on doing it later, but I'll do it earlier. The book written by Josephus, Josephus was a historian who took part in the war of, that started in 66 AD and went all the way to, no, it's, I think 67 AD and it went all the way to 70 AD, the war that the Jews fought against the Romans. And he got captured by Titus. And um, I think it was Titus, or else it would be his dad. Um, Titus and... Uh, forgot the name of his dad right now, come back to me. And anyhow, the general told him, okay, you write down everything you see. So he was kind of a reporter, jotting down what was going on. So he witnessed the whole siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he'll tell you that when... I'll read that passage for you. When the... Romans finally broke the siege and got into the cities. 
They ran into women who came out of homes with carcasses of babies they have cooked and they have eaten. What was written here was not a philosophical point of view. It happened down to the T during that siege. I'll read to you parts of it, and our ignorance of history is what prevents us sometimes from understanding some, some of that scripture. I'll read to you what happened during that siege. It's going to help you tremendously understand how that happened actually, how, why some imagery in the book of Revelation are being used. So, essentially, let me add one more thing actually before I, I comment on all of this. If you go back to the book of Deuteronomy, so remember that chapters 26 and 20, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 were conditional. If you keep the commandment, you get the blessings. If you don't, you get the curses. So at that point, Moses is still speaking conditionally. Then, chapter 30, the book of Deuteronomy, we'll read the following. Verse 1 of chapter 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have said before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice, and all that I command you this day, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion upon you, and, when, and He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Look, in chapter 30, he's basically saying, it's not an if. It's just going to happen. And I'm telling you right now, all of it's going to happen. All these blessings and all these curses are going to come upon you. You're going to end up in exile. And then only when you're in exile, will you really turn to the Lord and call upon His name with all your mind and all your soul, and He will bring you back. And when did this happen? According to the prophecy in the book of Daniel, 33 AD. That's when it happened. On the cross. That's when it happened, and here we are being brought back from all the nations into one family right here right now in San Diego the covenant is eternal and it keeps on moving and it regulates our lives and the lives of the world in fact it regulates the whole universe for St. Paul says all of creation is yearning for the salvation all of creation so Historically, the image you have to have in mind, which is important, and, and I'm going to go back now to Revelation very briefly and show you some passages, is that essentially you have a pattern, historical pattern, presented to us in the historical books of the Bible, where the way the chosen people lived the covenant is portrayed before us, and God's answer, according to what He said, is also portrayed before us. Now, what, what, when you look at it, you need to realize that Israel basically was the best of the best in terms of holiness. Across all the nations of the world, none was holier than Israel. None. I want to make that very clear. Because none had the Lord. None had the temple. None had the presence of the Lord in the temple. None. So what is the conclusion that should come through your mind? Well, if the best of the best ended up eating their own offsprings. Then Lord, who can be saved? Right? What this showcases is our inability. 
the inherent inability of fallen man to save himself. We can't do it. The best of the best tried and failed. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, Moses. The best of the best tried and failed. We can't do it. And it highlights the importance of Christ on the cross. It highlights the importance of the Mass. It highlights where the Mass is not optional. Because the best of the best tried and failed. So, the, the historical perspective is very, very important. And you will see that when I quote next week from some of the passages of the book, just to help you understand this a little bit better. It is important because without it, we don't understand some key elements in the book of Revelation as they pertain to the life of early Christians, first century. What it tells us is that the covenant is intertwined with the way the people lived it. And the, the Bible is actually reporting to us on how they tried to live it, and how they failed, and how they succeeded, and how God answered them. How does this translate to, in our lives today? Well, once you understand the pattern, once you step back, step or two, and take away barley and wheat and, and those things, and you understand them as being economic elements, you can replace those by dollars and stocks and what have you. The same thing works. The same thing works. The difference between the Old and the New Covenant is that in the New Covenant we're given graces to be able to live a life of faith. Because the sacraments impart upon us spiritual life. And therefore, they're there to enable us to attain to heaven, which was not there in the, in, in the previous, in the Old Covenant. However, the mechanics of the covenant still applies. As you saw, Paul himself, as the church used it, and as Christ the Lord uses it in our own lives. Some people, for instance, look at AIDS as um, you know, a, a, a curse and a condemnation from God. In a sense, yes, it is a curse. But is it a curse to condemn? I don't think so. I think it's a great and merciful act on God's part. Now, don't get me wrong, it's horrible, and I'm not trying to make a pretty picture of it. It's a horrible thing, and I don't wish it on anybody. But if you ask me, if I had to choose between AIDS and hell... I don't think anyone would, 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 would hesitate. God works in the same way today as he did before. He hasn't changed. The question is, now that Jesus came and we're saved. Remember, we're not saved. We are not saved. We are on our way. None of us here has, can presume to think that he has final perseverance. We can't presume that. We have to humbly pray and ask God... To give it to us. And in his prayer, the Our Father, he didn't say, give us our bread once and for all. Give us daily. Only today. Right? So, there, none of us can presume of being saved. All we can say is that the gates of heaven are open, and Christ will provide us with all the graces sufficient for us to be saved, provided we correspond today and tomorrow and every day until we die. And we ask Him for the gift of final perseverance. The church has insisted on that. All Catholics must pray humbly to receive the gift of final perseverance, meaning that you persevere all the way to the last breath in the faith. It's a grace that God wants to give us, but He's not 
typically willing to give it to us without us asking for it. So, as a loving father, he was a loving father back then, he's a loving father today. He will do whatever it takes to save us. And if it takes these types of horrible things to bring us back, he will do it. In fact, he would be cruel if he stopped. Because if he stops, if he knows he let us go, that's his absolute wrath. Is when God does not manifest anything. When God goes completely silent, tremble. When people are living in sin, and they're prospering, and doing good, and nothing seems to stop them, tremble. Because that is God's wrath. He's letting them go. But when He actually afflicts them, and takes those things away from them, so that they can wake up, and convert, that's His mercy. He's being merciful to them. You understand? Yeah. No, you want those things. Because without them, so many, so many more people will be lost to hell. I mean, think about it. How many you think are saved because God allowed them to live a luxurious life? How many who live a luxurious life spend their entire day saying, Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. I don't deserve any of this. Praise be to God. How many? How many pray and are on their knees when wonderful things happen to them? Versus those who are in pain. Think about that. You imagine what the world would be like if God took away all that and never afflicted anyone and never brought pain to anyone? Do you imagine? Do you imagine if abortion actually would allow a woman to glow and feel happier? That would be God's wrath. You understand? You need to see it in the eyes of a father who is concerned about our eternity. Not just our short stay here. It's about eternity. And yeah, if we live according to the covenant, he said it, if we try our best, if we're really mindful of his church, if we love her commandments, if we're studying them, if we're listening to the church, if we're willing to obey, if we're doing everything we can, you think, oh, well, then we're going to be spared suffering. Well, yeah, possibly. That's possible. And many actually go through that. Even in the middle of their suffering, they're consoled. Even in the middle of pain, they're strengthened. That's what St. Paul says. And then you have those pure souls who actually suffer even more to save souls. Okay? So, the lesson from all of this is not that God is this cruel God who is... No, no, no. God is love. But love is not just sweet words. It's doing whatever it takes to save someone's soul. That's love. And essentially, in a nutshell, that is the message of Revelation. With all these horrible images contained in it, God is doing a glorious thing. As we want to see. Okay? So, God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, 
please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.